Good afternoon and welcome to Midday Magazine for this Monday, the 31st day of October. I'm Julie Hersey. Petersburg's Housing Task Force met for the first time last week. The members shared their initial ideas for how the borough can help with Petersburg's housing crisis. Rachel Cassandra has more. Petersburg Borough Assembly member David Kensinger facilitated the meeting. What we've been tasked to do is a pretty broad mandate, which is to address the housing situation in Petersburg. He was joined by eight other housing task force members. They each introduced themselves and talked about their relevant experience and interest. Kensinger asked members of the force to present three ideas on how the borough can help with the housing crisis. What I want everybody to remember is there's limitations to what borough government can do. Annette Bennett is part of the group. They're the executive director for the nonprofit WAVE, or Working Against Violence for Everyone. The reason why this is so important to me is that I've seen many individuals come to our office seeking some kind of housing or a way to escape either a dangerous situation in their relationship or their being human trafficked. Their ideas focused on immediately helping people without safe housing. They first suggested opening up a camping area. Currently, right now, there's no legal place to exist if you don't have a house. They also suggested the borough buys the Ocean Beauty Bunkhouse, which is up for sale. It's located in the downtown area along the waterfront. Um, the other idea is also is to purchase the bunkhouse and then leasing that to either Humanity in Progress or Petersburg Medical Center for $1 to operate a warming shelter. Larry Hofstad also felt the bunkhouse could become housing quickly. He was born and raised in Petersburg. He says because of medical and health reasons, he has spent a lot of time in poverty and with unstable housing. But my my main thing is on, on the housing. And for people that just, you know, are having a tough time, don't have the money, the job, um, people that are trying to dig themselves out, Sarah Holmgren is the owner and broker of Petersburg Properties. She had some ideas for lower and middle income homes that could be built in as little as six months. Some of my ideas of a short-term solution is manufactured homes. Uh, Some people call them trailers, but they have really come a long way from the 1970s. Holmgren said maybe the borough could create a zone on North 8th Street to put those homes. Retired math teacher Darcy Ewart also thought tiny homes could fill a need. Tiny homes are homes with a footprint under 400 square feet. Ewart said they could be arranged in a way that fosters community. You have a central area and you build like seven to ten places around it. But like in Petersburg, you could have a covered area, which is your community's centered area. And she suggested that these tiny home communities could have architectural touches that tie to Petersburg culture. Maybe do some with a clinket. Flare. I also like the little Norway. Some of both. So when people come here, they see it. Gary Albach has spent the last 33 years building custom homes and remodeling houses. He says how they are built should be a priority. We pretty much focus on building energy efficient homes. He wants the borough to reduce the amount of insulation required for roofs on new buildings. The current requirement is based on international building code. But he says the climate in southeast Alaska doesn't call for such a high insulation level. It's something that seems small, but it can really help down the road with tiny houses, 
manufactured homes, all this stuff. He said it could also reduce building costs. Kensinger said that it's important to look to neighbors, so Petersburg doesn't reinvent the wheel. A lot of times our sister communities in the region are going through the same problems and have different ideas that might fit here and they might not. Local governments in Sitka and Ketchikan are considering how to deal with the housing crisis in their communities as well. Petersburg's task force will meet three more times, and then they plan to present their top ideas to the Petersburg Borough Assembly. That is scheduled for January. Reporting in Petersburg, I'm Rachel Cassandra. Aviation safety investigators are calling on operators of a popular Alaska bush plane to take them out of service until they can be inspected. That's after a de Havilland otter crashed in Washington state last month. The National Transportation Safety Board says a key component appears to have failed before the crash. And as Eric Stone reports, the agency is calling on U.S. and Canadian regulators to require operators to inspect their planes before their next flights. De Havilland DHC-3 otters are a staple of Alaska aviation. They're prized for their ability to take off and land in short distances and frequently serve as island-hopping float planes and backcountry bush planes. But after an otter crashed into Puget Sound in September, killing all 10 people aboard, the National Transportation Safety Board is calling on air carriers to take a close look at a part called the Horizontal Stabilizer Actuator, also known as the Trim Jack. It's part of the Pitch Trim Control System, which adjusts the horizontal portion of the plane's tail. Investigators said in an update that based on the wreckage of last month's crash, the actuator appears to have come unscrewed before the plane crashed into the water. NTSB Chair Jennifer Hammondy says that could lead a plane to nosedive, just as witnesses reported. Because of the separation, there would be a loss of control of pitch. The pilot would not be able to control the up or down movements of the plane. So the NTSB is calling on operators to make sure a lock ring that prevents the actuator from coming unscrewed is properly installed. We have issued an urgent safety recommendation to the Federal Aviation Administration and to Transport Canada to require all operators of the otters to conduct a one-time inspection to ensure the safety of the planes. The NTSB can't order the planes to be grounded. It's an investigator, not a regulator. That power rests with the FAA. In a statement, the FAA said it's contacting otter operators in the U.S. to ensure they're acting on a service letter issued by the aircraft's Canadian manufacturer. But the FAA is not mandating those inspections, at least not yet. The federal agency said it may take additional action based on the response of its Canadian counterpart. Transport Canada said in a statement that it was looking into the NTSB's recommendation. Hamadi says the NTSB wants the regulators to send a strong, unambiguous message. We need to make sure that they're safe, and we are concerned that uh, the service letter that Viking Air put out is advisory. It's not mandatory, and we want to make sure that all the operators are taking actions to inspect their planes uh, because the potential for a catastrophic loss of control uh, warrants immediate action. Hamandi says investigators are looking into, among other things, whether a maintenance oversight might have been responsible for the crash. The issue is unlikely to affect other de Havilland planes. A de Havilland Canada spokesperson said in an email that the DHC-3 Otter is the only aircraft in the manufacturer's fleet with a movable horizontal tail. 
Some air carriers have already responded to the call to inspect their planes. Ketchikan-based Taquan Air's maintenance director said in a statement that the company inspected its otters immediately after the Puget Sound crash as a precaution. The president of Wings Airways in Juneau said in a statement Wednesday that the company planned to examine its otters before returning them to service next spring. The company offers seasonal flight seeing and air taxi service. There have been at least 22 accidents in Alaska involving otters since 2000, according to the NTSB's database. That includes the 2010 crash that killed former Senator Ted Stevens and four others. Most were attributed to human error, regulatory failures, or other non-mechanical issues. NTSB Chair Hamadi says the Washington crash is the first time the agency has seen this exact issue. But what we're seeking as part of this urgent safety recommendation is information. So once uh, the operators conduct that one-time inspection, we want them to report information back to the FAA to see how widespread this concern is. Alaska is home to more than two-thirds of the nearly 70 otters registered in the U.S., according to an FAA database. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Eric Stone. Wrangell students could soon be riding around on the island's first electric school bus after the school district was selected to receive federal funding. As Sage Smiley reports, the district was selected to receive nearly $400,000 from the Federal Environmental Protection Agency to purchase a zero-emission vehicle. The EPA has announced the recipients of $913 million in funding for school districts across the country to purchase electric or clean energy school buses. Wrangell Island's public school district is the only district in Alaska selected for first-round funding. Superintendent Bill Burr says the district applied for the federal program back in August. Wrangell schools contract with a local private company, Taylor Transportation, for bus service. But the district foots the gas bill. Since we have hydroelectric power, the the cost would be less to run an electric bus than it would be for fuel. And the EPA is looking at clean emissions. That's their main goal is to get as many polluted buses off the street connected to schools specifically. Two other Alaska school districts, Sitka School District and Valdez City School District, are both on the wait list for EPA clean bus funding this year. Both districts applied for nine buses apiece. Burr says Wrangell is more of an ideal location than some districts up north for an electric bus. The temperate islands of the Tongass don't get to the sub-zero temperatures of communities on the road system or the interior. We don't suffer the really cold temperatures that make it harder for some school districts in Alaska to look at electric school buses, as well as we don't have the range that many school districts have where the buses would be driving long distances. Wrangell is an island, so there's only so much road to drive. Plus, there aren't that many students. The whole district is served by two bus routes. The electric bus is projected to cost $375,000. The rebate will also include up to $20,000 to install proper charging infrastructure. And part of the deal is that Taylor Transportation will need to get rid of a bus. The plan is to sell or dispose of one built in 2005. Clean bus rebates aren't new. The EPA has had a program under the 2005 Diesel Emissions Reduction Act, says Seattle-based EPA spokesperson Suzanne Skadowski. Diesel emissions, um, and especially for kids, you know, can be a really big problem. Kids are very vulnerable to air pollution and pollution in general. And so this is just a real, a good way to protect kids. But she adds there's more assistance available now through the federal bipartisan infrastructure law passed earlier this year. What's happening now is we've just gotten this big infusion of infrastructure dollars 
that are really going to help kind of supercharge this effort because a lot of schools want the newer electric school buses, and they are very expensive, more so than the um, the typical things in the past. People have just done retrofits, which are great too, but I think most schools now are moving to try to get you know all electric buses, uh, which take you know a bigger investment, which is part of the reason why we just did this big infusion of funds into that program. Superintendent Burr says he's excited for Wrangell, but also about the prospect of more communities in Alaska getting assistance to green their bus fleets in the coming years. The infrastructure law provides for $5 billion for clean school buses over the next five years. We are hopeful that this is the beginning of a lot of school districts in Southeast being able to replace their school buses with with clean fuel. But directly to the school district, this will help us in our costs on cutting down on fuel costs every time those buses are running. Skidowski echoed that, saying the EPA wants more applications as well. We really just want schools to apply. I think this infusion of funds is going to really help schools to feel like they can actually get those buses because under the previous grant program, the grants really weren't big enough to cover the full cost of an electric school bus, and now they will. In total, the EPA reports the initial round of funding this year will go to purchase 2,463 buses throughout all 50 states, Washington, D.C., as well as several federally recognized tribes and U.S. territories. And the agency says it plans to award $52 million more to other school districts throughout the country over the coming weeks. In Wrangell, it's not totally set when the new electric bus will make it to the island, but to get a rebate from the EPA, it'll have to be purchased within six months. In Wrangell, I'm Sage Smiley. That wraps up the news portion of Midday Magazine for this Monday.